This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Hello, welcome to episode two of The Neurodivergent Woman. Hi, this is Monique, and today we're going to be talking about diagnosis. So we thought today that we could go through uh, the diagnostic process, so the things that are actually involved in the diagnostic process for both autism and ADHD, and then also just chatting a little bit about what are some of the traits and features that are diagnostic um, and how that can look differently um, for women, uh, of course, and also across childhood, adolescence and adulthood. We're also going to talk about what to bring to prepare yourself for your own diagnostic assessment, if that's something you would like to do, um, and what types of things to think about. And we will be talking more about other neurodivergences in later episodes uh, because there's just not enough uh, space to cover that um, and they deserve their own episode later on. We know that we have been um, quite focused at the moment on uh, autism and ADHD specifically. Um, Yeah, and we really just want to give some time and space for things like dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia, um, autoprocessing disorder, things like that. So we're going to have a complete episode um, on those things. Uh, But yeah, as Monique said, just not enough time to get through everything um, or cover all of those topics today. So what I'm going to do is just kind of take you guys through what my diagnostic process is. So I do a lot of diagnostic work. That's mainly um, all the primary kind of clients that I see. Um, and my process it might be different to the processes for other psychologists, and it would definitely be different to the process for psychiatrists. Um, and we can kind of chat about some of those differences as we go through. But basically, I follow a three-session um, process. So first session is clinical interview. And the reason that that's super important is because that really helps me kind of understand your life history, uh, what's kind of brought you to this diagnostic um, assessment. Uh, And we go through a lot of things like things you've noticed from your childhood, your adolescence and things that are going on for you at the moment. The second session is our assessment session. So that's when I'd use actual assessment measures like the ADOS or the MIDGAS for autism. And we'll talk about exactly what those are. Um, and for ADHD, we might do some cognitive testing. Um, I'd also usually do some specific problem-solving testing just to see what your problem-solving style is. Um, and we'd also go through a bit more of a structured diagnostic interview in that session as well. And then the final session is our feedback session where we kind of put everything together, go through all the results and chat about what we might be thinking. Um, another really important tool that I use is uh, behavioral questionnaires. So behavioral questionnaires are basically, um, you know, not quizzes <laughs> online. Um, they're sort of validated uh, measures that compare the things that you're experiencing with what would be considered typical for your age or sex, depending on the questionnaire. So, Michelle, tell us about the ADOS and the MIDGAS and the types of testing, cognitive testing that you would use for ADHD. Yeah, for sure. So, um, a lot of people use the ADOS almost exclusively uh, to, to assess for autism. Um, 
I really like the ADOS for children, but I don't like it for adults. <laughs> and that I mean, people have different opinions around that. The ADOS I find um, is very activity-based. So the ADOS is really designed to look at your communication skills, how you communicate, how you request, how you respond to things. Um, There are questions in the ADOS around, you know, social relationships, things like that. Um, But it's very focused on that criteria of autism, which is differences or, you know, officially it's called deficits, but we know that that's inaccurate. Um, Differences in social-emotional reciprocity or communication. So it's super communication-based. And I find for kids, because it's quite fun, Um, There's heaps of activities, stuff like that. It does give a really, really good measure or an indication uh, of what's going on. What I find for adults is that by the time you have got to adulthood, and this is true for women in particular, um, you've usually learned some pretty good masking strategies, which means that on paper or on the surface level, um, your ability to kind of look like you are communicating in a neurotypical way is pretty good. Um, So I find that the ADOS often underdiagnoses women, um, even quite switched on uh, girls, you know, who are kind of 12 or above, usually do pretty well on the ADOS. And by pretty well, I mean, you know, they don't score in that autistic range. Um, But when we look at all the background information and all the other things that are going on, um, you know, there's definitely an autistic neurotype there, but it's just not being picked up. So I prefer what's called the mid-gas um, for assessment of adults and, again, for assessment of women in particular. This is just a long um, structured interview in essence. So I'm going through kind of all the diagnostic um, features that we would associate with an autistic neurotype things like uh, interests, sensory, communication style, relationships, um, and asking heaps of questions about how your brain would process certain types of information, how you would respond to certain things. Um, And I find that it gives a much more holistic and accurate picture for adults. So that's sort of my preference there. Okay, yeah, I think that's a really good point to make, Michelle, because I guess part of... The issue with being a woman who's autistic is that you might um, slip through the cracks Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. testing if the testing is not sensitive enough. And we have talked about in the first episode of the podcast about how um, the research around autism and other neurodivergences was primarily male-based back in the day. And that can sometimes filter into the testing, I think, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And For men, you know, I've tested adult men um, on the spectrum, their communication style is often still quite clearly autistic. Um, Mm. And so they often show up. um, And I think the big reason for that, a couple of things, but one of the big reasons for that is the socialization aspect, whereas men are often allowed to have their, you know, idiosyncrasies. Um, They're allowed to be, you know, the genius who is, you know, doing their own thing. Um, Whereas women are taught from a very young age that we have to kind of conform. Um, So I think being really mindful of how someone is testing for an autistic neurotype, particularly as an adult woman is really important because, Mm -hmm. you know, and I say to my clients all the time, the assessment itself is actually just one tool in the process. 
it's an important tool uh, and it's important because it's giving what we call a normed comparison. So having something be normed just means that it's compared to other people of your sex or age, you know, depending on on what it's testing. Um, So it's a lot more accurate, I guess, than say, you know, a a quiz you might do online. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there are certain screening tools that you can do online um, and some of them, you know, do have some validation. But I mm-hmm. think it is really good to go in and, yeah, talk to um, somebody that specializes in it. Um, yeah. And I think it is important as well if you're going to look for diagnosis because that's important to you that you really think about who you want to get assessed by Mm -hmm. and you do your research on them and you find out if their methods um, align with uh, what you want out of the diagnostic process. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of the process that I follow um, for assessment of autism. Um, As I said, with ADHD, we do some cognitive testing usually. And what I'm really looking for there is what we call markers. So ADHD can't be diagnosed based on a cognitive test. And the reason for that is because, you know, ADHD doesn't say anything about someone's underlying intelligence or their cognitive profile. It's a way of a brain, one way a brain can be. Um, so people can have, you know, massive variations in, you know, what how they might perform on cognitive testing. But when I say markers, what we often see is that people who have an ADHD neurotype often struggle with what's called working memory. So working memory is kind of like our mental bench space. So how much information can we hold in mind at once, uh, do stuff with, and then spit out an answer? So a couple of components involved in our working memory. Uh, Firstly, how big is your bench? So how much information can you have in mind at once? Secondly, how organized is your bench? So when information comes in, can you keep it sort of structured, systematic, so that it's not like, you know, papers all over a desk? Um, And then thirdly, how good are you at cleaning that bench? So when you don't need that information anymore, can you get rid of it? People with ADHD tend to have difficulty organizing their bench, (laughs) which makes sense, right? Mm, So It's a messy bench. Exactly. (laughs) Such a messy bench. So they often have, you know, like papers all over their bench, um, if we're sort of using this analogy which means that rather than what we might think of forgetting, you know, forgetting sort of more accurately means, you know, you've encoded or learned something and then you've lost it. Um, What people with ADHD often experience is just losing information off that bench space. Um, You know, it's not encoded in the first place. So this is often why, you know, people with ADHD struggle to do things like remember dates or, you know, I can't remember where I've put my car keys. Well, it's not that you can't remember, it's that A, you probably weren't paying attention in the first place. And then B, that information about where your car keys is, it's on your bench somewhere. It's just not accessible. (laughs) So what we often see on cognitive testing is relative to someone's overall intellectual capacity, um, some issues with their working memory. So a little bit uh, of that kind of disorganized bench. And then we might also see um, when we look at some of their problem problem solving skills, um, a tendency to act first, think later. So they might, you know, solve all the problems that they need to. I'm not looking for the score. I'm looking for how you went about, you know, 
processing that information or solving that problem. So it's more about the process side of things and less about the score side of things. Um, but really for ADHD, ADHD is what we call a behavioral diagnosis, which means that, you know, your performance on testing, as I said, can't diagnose you. What can diagnose you is the features that you're experiencing in your life. So something that I actually find incredibly irritating about the diagnostic criteria for ADHD in particular um, is that, and this is for diagnosing women, is that all the criteria is very behavioral. So it's, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Whereas often a woman might be experiencing the internal experience of, you know, that neurotype, but for various reasons um, is not actually demonstrating the behavior associated with that. Um, You know, there've been lots of um, kind of thoughts in this space, the academics in this space around changing the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. Mm. Yeah, I think um, it's very true that a lot of women are underdiagnosed with ADHD, particularly in adulthood, because they're not manifesting some of those outward expressions. Mm. Um, and because they're not bothering anybody else, like their behavior is not bothering other people. Yeah. You know, they're not that hyperactive little boy disrupting the classroom or, you know, rocking their seat or running around everywhere. Mm. Um I think, yeah, there's not that outward expression. And more often women have, say, the inattentive type of ADHD, um, which is, I guess, a little bit harder to pick up on um, or escapes maybe the attention of the teacher or the adults that are around at that time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, someone I know who has uh, is a woman and has the inattentive type ADHD um, was saying that when she was in primary school, her teachers would say, oh, yeah, so-and-so has a bit of difficulty concentrating uh, and it's because she's boy crazy. And she was <laughs> really? saying, I don't remember being boy crazy. Wow. And it's that, you know, oh, well, girls can't have ADHD. And so it must be, you know, this this must be due to something else. It's a bit and dismissive, isn't it? Completely. And exactly mm. as you say, Monique, it wasn't a problem for anyone else. She wasn't causing disruption to the classroom. She wasn't impacting the teacher's ability to give their lesson or to teach other kids in the classroom. And so it was just a, oh, this person's a little bit boy crazy. Mm, Super dismissive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just wondering as well, say if someone had no, I guess, information about, well, how do you go about getting a diagnosis of ADHD or autism as well? What would you say to them? What would you say the process is? Do you go to your GP and get a referral and to whom? And can you walk us through that? Yeah, great question. So um, there's a couple of options. Um, If you're wanting to go down the route of a psychiatrist diagnosis, uh, that can often be quicker sometimes. Um, But as you were saying before, Monique, I would suggest being very careful about who you go to. Um, There's some amazing psychiatrists who are very well-versed in um, adult ADHD, autism, and particularly for women. And there's some terrible psychiatrists who are not well-versed in that. Um, You know, I had a client once who said that she went to a psychiatrist and said, oh, 
I think that you're just feeling a little bit sad because of COVID. Here's a Disney movie that I would suggest you watch <laughs> and that might help you feel better. Wow. And, and you like, just paid like four hundred, five hundred dollars exactly, for, for that amazing advice. advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um so if you're going to go down the psychiatrist route, you usually need a referral from your GP uh, to go and see a psychiatrist. Um, if you're wanting to be assessed for ADHD, you will generally have to see a psychiatrist anyway if, if you're wanting to go down a medication route. Um, so that can be kind of a quicker process there. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but just being really careful that you're going with someone who has experience in ADHD, who is able to sort of tease apart the different components and work out if that is actually what's going on for you or if potentially there's something else. Um, If you're not wanting to go to see a psychiatrist, if you want to see a psychologist, again, looking for someone who specializes in those assessments. And for adults as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, There are so many services out there for children and teenagers, but something that I've noticed is there's not actually that many services that are geared towards Mm -hmm. adults, Mm -hmm. even for treatment. um, But yeah, for diagnosis as well. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're wanting to get a Medicare rebate on your appointments, you'd have to go and get a referral from a GP. If you're wanting to fund it privately or you have private health, then you don't have to. You can just book straight in. Um, And I would say in the first appointment, the first session you go along, bring as much information as you can about your experiences. Aminique, you and I have talked about before how important and helpful it is as a psychologist when someone comes with examples. Yeah, I think um, it's really helpful to make a list, start writing down what you're experiencing in your day-to-day life, start thinking about um, your experiences in high school or in primary school as a child and think of specific examples where um, some of your neurodivergence has displayed itself or uh, maybe affected you in some way. Because sometimes um, people will take something like, oh, you know, hyperactivity or impulsivity and be like, yeah, I'm really impulsive. But what they think impulsivity is might be different to what we're looking for clinically, and Mm. it just helps us to have those concrete examples. And I would even suggest um, if you're looking to maybe go to a psychiatrist and get a referral from a GP, uh, particularly for an adult woman, is to as well take in that list of uh, symptoms and experiences of uh, what your experiences it is and how it's impacting you because sometimes – you know, particularly if you've been masking a lot on the outside, you might appear to not be in as much distress as what you're internally experiencing. Mm. And sometimes health professionals will just see on the outside, oh, yeah, they're coping okay. Or, you know, no, they definitely don't have that going on with them. Why would you want a referral for that? Um, so it's important that you actually really take the time to find out as much information about ADHD or autism as you can, document your experiences and really advocate for yourself. And if you get a no, like go go away and push for it um, because, yeah, you deserve to be assessed and to be seeing like what's actually going on here. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I really want to emphasize too, going in with a clear understanding yourself of why you want to be assessed. Um, That's important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, just for yourself to work out what purpose is this actually going to serve for you? Is it that you want clarity? 
Is it that you're seeking access to certain supports or services? Um, is it that you want your employer to know so that you can request certain accommodations, things like that? Um, having a really clear why is super important sometimes in that initial GP um, session so that you can then communicate that to the GP because, you know, often GPs meaning well, I think, might be like, well, you're an adult, this is not going to serve any purpose, so I don't think that you need to get it. No, I'm not going to write you this referral. And if you can say, I understand that, but for me, this is why I want it, um, then that's going to be so much easier to do if you've pre-prepared that response rather than in the moment in that office having to kind of scramble cognitively and, and you know, express yourself and advocate for yourself there. So pre-preparing is really important. Yeah. And I, I think as well with getting a diagnosis and really thinking about, um, yeah, why, why you want to go through that process. Um, cause that often is an investment in terms of time and money as well. Often you're waiting a while to be able to get into somebody to get a diagnosis, especially since COVID's happened, the waiting mm-hmm. times are quite extended, especially to get into people that are specialized in that area of neurodivergence. Um, but yeah, I think it's also good to just think about with the whole diagnosis thing that there are some people who maybe really can't afford at that period in their life to get a diagnosis or they're in a circumstance where um, that pathway is really blocked for them. And I think in those particular situations, it's good to just realize that sometimes having that official diagnosis is a privilege that not everybody can afford or access all the time. Um, and just making space for that, that sometimes self-diagnosis is, you know, well, actually a lot of times self-diagnosis is valid. Um, but also on the other hand, just wanting to make sure that, um, there are other sort of conditions that can sometimes cloud or, um, present similarly Mm. to ADHD or autism. And, and so sometimes going to, an expert or a professional, it is really just about making sure you're on the right track so that you can actually be working on, I guess, the right stuff um, rather than being like, oh, yeah, I've got ADHD, but it could be something else entirely. And then, you know, you're spending all that time and money trying to access treatment that's not treating the right right thing. Yeah, I so agree with that, Monique. I think, you know, obviously sometimes it is autism and sometimes it is ADHD. Um, and you know, if you have done research and you've looked into it and you've done lots of reading, um, and you know, you've exposed yourself to lots of information about what autism is, what ADHD is, and it really resonates with you, then, you know, that self-diagnosis is often completely valid. You know, if you've kind of put that work into going through all of that, The other thing, though, is just to look at what's going on in your life right now, because I think for women in particular, often when we feel distress or overwhelm or we feel like something isn't working, we're often seeking to try and find out, okay, well, what's wrong with me that I'm not coping in this moment? And so many times how you feel is actually a completely valid response to what is going on in your life. You know, are you being supported in your relationship? If you're a parent, do you feel like your co-parent is co-parenting at the same level that you are? What's your work situation like? Are you overworking yourself? You know, as women, we, it's a cliche, but we are trained that we've got to work twice as hard to be thought of as half as good. So, 
you know, one thing that I think women can learn from men is saying no to work stuff. You know, if you're not being appropriately compensated for what you're being asked to do, you actually don't have to say yes all the time. Um, Yeah, I think what you're saying is true in that, yeah, sometimes when you're distressed or overwhelmed, it can be because there's other factors going on in your life. And it's important to look at like the the basics of mental health and self-care. Like, you know, are you eating? Are you drinking water? Are you getting sleep? Do you have enough support in your life? Um, And not to jump straight to, oh, like, you know, um, I've got ADHD or something like that. But I think on the flip side of that too, often it can be so validating for people to receive that diagnosis and go, okay, this is an explanation for why I've struggled so much. And once you know what's going on for you and how your brain works and what works for you and what doesn't work for you, you can really tailor your life. Um, You can tailor your work, how you interact with friends, um, you know, all of those things so that they're supporting your neurodivergence rather than you trying to pass as neurotypical. Yeah, completely. And one of the things that I think uh, is so helpful in understanding how your brain works, whatever that might be, is actually being able to tailor your life to fit with your brain rather than exactly as you were saying, Monique, feeling like you've got to tailor your brain to fit with life because that's not always going to work and that leads to burnout and Mm. complete, you know, distrust of yourself at Mm. your core, right? There's something wrong with me. I'm not able to do this. So, you know, I think ultimately if it's an option that's available to you and the question of, you know, autism or ADHD has been something that's playing on your mind and you would like to get clarity on, um, going through a diagnostic process with a specialist in that area can be super helpful. But if it's not an option available to you, I think the next best thing is just doing as much research as you can around Mm. what those things are. Um, And if you really resonate with that and you feel like that fits your experience, then you're probably right. Something that I think about is that everyone is the best expert on themselves. You know, they are the experts on themselves. No one else has had your experiences. No one else has been in your shoes. Like as an outside person working with you as a therapist, um, you know, I can only pick up what I can, but you're the, the one that really knows what your experience is like. And I think that is why um, you will normally know what's going on for you. And, yes, it's good to get that outside confirmation, but if you're getting invalidated for all the wrong reasons, you know, you don't need to take that on board because you you know what's going on with you the best. Mm. Uh, yeah, speaking my language. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I think for women in particular, women at our core, we're often so insightful with what's going on with us, um, but we have been trained to disbelieve that because mm. society disbelieves it. And to doubt ourselves. Exactly. Mm. And I think, Monique, in our last episode, you were chatting a little bit about, um, you know, medical response to women and often how women's pain is disbelieved and invalidated. And that's just one example of, you know, as a woman, our experiences are told, nope, you're wrong. You're actually not experiencing that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you go through a diagnostic process with someone and what they're saying as the, you know, quote unquote expert just does not gel with 
how you've experienced your life and what seems right for you, then just leave that in the bin. (laughs) And it's okay to seek a second opinion as well. Okay, so let's maybe talk through... um, what do we look for? Um, So obviously you're the diagnostician here, but even for myself, when I'm working with any of my clients, I'm always having in the back of my mind, looking for certain clinical signs Mm -hmm. um, of what's going on. And like I mentioned in the first episode, there've been people that I've worked with for a long time for years, but before I actually did further training um, in neurodivergence in women, I actually didn't pick up that maybe they were on the spectrum or maybe they were ADHDers. Um, So now that I know the signs to look out for, um, that's where I'll start to do some screening and then bring it up with the person and then maybe suggest that if it's right for them that they go and have some official testing and um, diagnostic assessment. So let's start with autism um, and then we'll go through some of the things that we're looking for for ADHD. For autism, probably the main thing that most people are looking for diagnostically uh, is the use of communication. So we've touched on the fact that the major difference between a neurotypical brain and a neurodivergent brain um, is what drives behaviour. So for neurotypicals, it's importance and tribal inclusion, social conformity. And for neurodivergence, it's interest and passion. So this sort of, you know, pervades all aspects of the diagnostic process in terms of what we're looking for. And in a communication sense, uh, one of the things I look for is what purpose does communication serve for you, right? So we often see in um, people who have an autistic neurotype, the purpose of communication is to convey information about something that I'm interested in or passionate about or something that's capturing my attention right now. Um, so in the diagnostic process, one of the things that I'm kind of looking for is how does your communication style change when you're talking about something you're interested in versus when we're just having a boring, inane back and forth? Now, you know, for women in particular, they might be able to have that inane back and forth because they've been so trained by society. Um, But there's some subtle cues in the way that someone might go about, um, you know, communicating that kind of lets you know what their preferred purpose is. Um, The other thing to say there around the communication style is for neurotypicals, because neurotypicals are so driven by social inclusion, tribal inclusion, What's actually happened is that in the brains of neurotypicals, uh, the areas of the brain that are responsible for things like reading microexpressions in people's faces, understanding slight changes in tone, um, reading that really subtle nonverbal communication, those parts of the brain have been, in essence, over-resourced. So they've sort of received a whole bunch of funding, which means that uh, neurotypicals almost have a complete kind of secret language um, that they just kind of get what's implied in communication, what someone's really trying to express. um, And they're picking up on those kind of really subtle uh, differences or changes in nonverbal communication. And they're also using nonverbal communication uh, extensively 
right? So for a neurotypical communicating something, I think it's something like 80% of their communication is nonverbal, so not based on the actual words that they're saying. So when we're assessing uh, for autism, we're looking at uh, some of those nonverbal cues, so your response to and your use of nonverbal communication. So thinking about how that kind of difference in communication might manifest for girls uh, in childhood, what we're often looking for, what we often see is um, girls in primary school often try and mimic a lot. So, you know, currently, you know, obviously we have YouTube now. We didn't when we were kids. Um, (laughs) But currently we often see girls uh, on the spectrum obsessively watching YouTube videos and then copying almost down to the T um, the way that a YouTuber might explain something or present something or their behavioral uh, mannerisms. Um, We can also see this just with friends, you know, picking a girl at school or an actor or some sort of role model in some sense and almost like taking on that role. So we see that a lot in girls in childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's uh, for childhood as well. People might not, I guess, even be aware mm. um, that how they're thinking or feeling is different to, you know, most of the people yeah. that they're around or that they know. They might feel confused, mm. you know, why why is what I'm saying not coming across the way I want it to come across? And that's where that, I think, mimicking can come into place. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like, you know, girls – having that realization of hang on a second i'm speaking english and everyone's speaking french Mm. i know like rudimentary french Mm. (laughs) i can order at a restaurant Mm. um but the complexity of what people are saying the nuances of it and and vice versa of what Mm. i'm saying it's it's sputting heads like it's not a match and that's often why girls will think okay i'm just going to pretend to be this person Mm. and i'm just going to do everything the way that this person does it Mm -hmm. um because that way I can almost put on that suit of armor, put on that role, um, and that can kind of help me navigate this yep. communication stuff. I think too sometimes like the difficulty being able to read other people, people on the spectrum can just be really honest mm. and sometimes you'll find that you just say stuff because you're actually telling the truth or you're really pointing out what's going on in the situation. But say if you're a girl in school, it can be seen as you being quite rude um, and then you might get in trouble with the teacher, but not really understand why you've gotten in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of getting in trouble or, you know, either with a teacher or just with your social group is a major feature uh, for girls on the spectrum, often when they get to kind of late primary, early high school, Mm. because for neurotypicals, that developmental period is when a lot of social changes take place and the social world goes from, you know, quite concrete, you know, in in essence, I like green, you like green, let's be friends, um, to quite complex actually particularly Mm. for girls um and we often see in that period um girls as we said often you know mimicking or taking on a role or we can see a bit of a regression in developmental stage and what i mean by that is often taking on the role of you know someone a bit younger than them Mm. or you know wanting to do things that are seen as developmentally immature Mm. you know playing with dolls or babies or being super reliant on others um and the reason for that is often just that overwhelm with i have no idea what's going on 
why is everyone behaving like a maniac right now? (laughs) Um, Why is everyone speaking French, you know, all of a sudden? And so it's that kind of reverting to that place where, well, I knew what was happening Mm -hmm. when I was this age or, you know, I know what's expected of Mm -hmm. me if I'm the baby or if I'm the little girl. Um, So that can be a manifestation of those communication difficulties too. And the other thing there as well is, you know, the question around eye contact. Obviously this is something Mm -hmm. that, you know, most people have heard of when it comes to autism. Um, and girls often learn quite quickly that mm-hmm. eye contact is expected. Um, and so to the casual observer, it doesn't look like they have any difficulty with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we often see is either over eye contact. So mm-hmm. m- missing those kind of, um, really subtle and unspoken beats of eye contact um or they totally get that and they'll do it really seamlessly but it feels overwhelming and Mm. it's so draining and they talk about you know i have to kind of i I pick a spot on someone's face to look at or um i'll look away or i'm constantly thinking narrating in my head okay look 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 away Mm. look look, look away um it's not an intuitive thing and this is where i think um some professionals who maybe aren't don't have expertise in this area they might dismiss someone going for a diagnosis by saying oh but you can make eye contact in the diagnostic interview i hate that Yeah. yeah and that's I think that's just showing that lack of understanding about the masking that women do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think just thinking then about adulthood, how some of that communication stuff plays out. Um, often what I see is that adult women uh, on the spectrum, if they have a partner, they've often met their partner quite early and it's one of the only relationships they've had and they've known immediately. And they've been with that person, you know, pretty much right through their adulthood. Um, they often don't have many friends. And sometimes that's something they don't like. And sometimes they're totally fine with it, mm-hmm. right? So if that's the case for you and you don't have many, you know, social connections, have a think about how you actually feel about it. Mm-hmm. Not how you're supposed to feel about it, mm-hmm. but how you actually feel about it. Because you might feel like your social cup is full completely mm-hmm. by just your little tribe. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you've got really good close friend and you've got your family and that might be enough. On the other hand, sometimes we get women who, you know, are on the spectrum entering their adulthood and they've been so scarred and actually traumatized really by a lot of these really horrible social interactions or social circumstances that they have had to face that it's almost like, I don't want to risk that Mm. happening again. You know, I always say the wrong thing. Everyone's always mad at me and I don't know why. Or you've just like, you know, gone through losing different social groups from high school through to early adulthood um, and sometimes being taken advantage of because Mm. of some difficulty reading those unspoken uh, unspoken social cues. You don't know sometimes when people are taking advantage of you Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or using you. um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that kind of reticence or reluctance to put yourself out there makes absolute logical sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's a completely valid Mm -hmm. response to the experiences that you've had. And this is one of my bugbears with the diagnostic criteria is that, you know, if someone is feeling completely happy within themselves, they have processed all their trauma, um, they're happy in their lives, 
there's actually no deficit in social-emotional reciprocity, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to have reciprocal social interactions Mm -hmm. because there's no trauma. Yeah. When we see a deficit is really, I think, when we're seeing trauma. But anyway, we can talk about the trauma side of things in in another episode, but I think that's important to flag. Yeah. And I think, yeah, sometimes as you get older, there are more complexities to the social relationships. Mm. Um, But by that time, you've probably gotten maybe a bit more of a hang sometimes of the different cues to follow, things to do or say. And then if you've had a special interest in something like psychology um, or a special interest in people, sometimes by the time, you know, you hit adulthood, uh, by the time you reach your 30s or 40s, you have actually learned all of those skills, but it's been at a later time. It's been through a lot more effort um, and because you have that special interest in that area, whereas if you had a special interest in a different area like uh, horses or something like that um, or boy bands, then, yeah, you might not have developed some of those skills as much because you're not as interested in it perhaps. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, and I think that kind of leads us quite nicely to uh, another one of the main things that we are looking for diagnostically is the presence of intense and special interests. Mm. Um, For me, probably interests and differences in sensory processing are the Mm -hmm. two Mm non-negotiables in the sense of if someone presents with what might look like on the surface as, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an autistic neurotype, but really has had you know, can't really give any examples of Mm. times they've been consumed by something or getting really interested about something Mm. um, and they have no differences in their sensory processing, Mm -hmm. then I would say it's not autism. It's something else. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, so for some some clients um, that, you know, say you're screening – they may have a history of trauma as Mm. well. So if they've had childhood trauma, um, you have to look at – are some of those, I guess, interests a means of escapism from dealing with what's going on at home? Is some of the communication sort of issues, are they from not being taught or modelled those things? Um, And that's something that I look at trying to rule in or rule out. And it is good if you kind of have, I guess, process your traumas if you have them, um, then you can kind of more clearly see, okay, if these uh, features of my personality are still there, mm. um, I'm still having um, issues with certain things in my life, okay, well, maybe, you know, yeah. there's um, something more going on here. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think something that I look out for too is like family history. Um, so that helps me distinguish between is it, you know, complex PTSD and trauma or is it autism or ADHD where, okay, your brother's got ADHD, um, you've got two cousins that are on the spectrum, um, what are your aunts and uncles like? What about your grandparents? Okay, there's epilepsy in the family, there's schizophrenia in the family, um, all of those things that there's OCD, you know, you're looking for that genetic component that's running through. And then if you have, you know, parents um, that maybe haven't been diagnosed or um, haven't been given support, then maybe that's where some of those difficulties come about. Yeah. And one thing that I, I really want to flag as well is that sometimes it's both. 
Mm. You know, you can have complex trauma Absolutely. and also have an autistic neurotype or an ADHD neurotype. Mm. And what we often see, you know, exactly as you said, Monique, it's really common for people who have trauma to, you know, maybe do things like reading as an escape or, mm. you know, focusing on a passion. Um, but we see that more in people who have an autistic neurotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, we see the continuation of that, you know, throughout adulthood as well. So interest is definitely a really important factor that we look at. Um, but as you say, also looking at what other things might be driving that, you know, if there's mm. something else that might be explaining that. And then the other one there, as I mentioned, is differences in sensory processing. Mm-hmm. Um This is, without a doubt, something that every single person on the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. experiences, but really important to say that they experience it differently from each other. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because because I work primarily, you know, in trauma, um, that is something that's helped me discriminate um, Mm. and screen out people as well. Um, Because sometimes if you have been through trauma, you can be left with hypervigilance um, and there has actually been some interesting research that has come out where uh, when people on the spectrum have actually gone through trauma therapy like EMDR, um, that distress that they were under actually reduced all of those uh, traumatic stress symptoms like the hypervigilance, but some of the sensory issues and things like that remained. Yeah. Um, and many of my clients will tell me, you know, I, I really hate going to the grocery store to go grocery shopping. It's really overwhelming, the lights, the noise. Um, and yeah, I think just really actually screening all of your clients for sensory issues is really helpful. The other thing to say about the sensory side of things is often when we think about sensory stuff, we think about sensory overwhelm or disliking certain sensory experiences. But sensory differences can also manifest as sensory seeking behavior. Um, You know, there's that classic, uh, I guess, uh, stereotype around people on the autism spectrum not wanting to be touched. And sometimes that's absolutely the case. Sometimes it's when I and faced with physical touch that is outside my control or someone's, you know, touching me unexpectedly, that feels really icky. But we also get the opposite pattern where, you know, often for kids in particular, they're often touch-seeking. So they often really want that a tactile sensation. They really like that kind of firm pressure. Um, they might be tactile seeking in other ways. Like there might be certain fabrics that you really like to rub or touch or, um, you know, fiddle with. There might be certain fabrics that conversely you absolutely hate, you know, differences in how your system processes sensory information can look every which way um and two people on the spectrum as we're saying before might have completely different sensory processing systems Mm. but the diagnostic feature of that is it's measurably different to what a neurotypical person's sensory system might be like Mm. and you know one of the major reasons uh that i find uh adults and again particularly women on the spectrum burn out when they're undiagnosed or haven't kind of addressed some of these issues is 
sensory overwhelm and it might not be something that you're actually clocking like you might not even think of that as something that's kind of taking up your mental space um but you know being in a minority of any kind and even you know a a neurological minority often means that you've got to sacrifice your comfort for the comfort of those around you and you just learn through osmosis by you know living in society that the way that you're experiencing things is just wrong um, and you just have to suck it up. And, you know, if you finding this overwhelming or you're wanting a certain sense or experience that others aren't, well, then that's wrong. Mm. And so eventually over our lifetime, we actually internalize that quite a bit. And rather than tuning into and reading and listening to your body when your body is saying, oh, nope, this is too much or I don't like this. Um, we're not hearing that voice anymore and we often don't hear it until we get to such a point that we're burnt out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've covered kind of like the major criteria for autism. So let's talk about ADHD. So I know in ADHD there are three, I guess, subtypes um that we're looking for there's the inattentive subtype the hyperactive subtype and the combined subtype which includes both inattentive and hyperactive symptoms yeah so most common is the combined subtype and then second most common is the inattentive subtype and least common i've actually only ever seen one case of this is the purely hyperactive impulsive subtype Mm. so the way i kind of think about it is ADHD is really, um, you know, describes difficulties with internal regulation. So self-regulation is basically control. Mm -hmm. And so we can self-regulate or control a number of different um, processes in Mm -hmm. our brain. So we could self-regulate our internal thoughts. We could regulate our emotions. We could regulate our behavior, so activity level, behavioral manifestations, things like that. People who have the combined type have difficulty regulating all three. So what unregulated thoughts look like is thoughts that sort of zip off in all different directions. Um, You know, one thought leads to another thought leads to another thought. And within sort of 0.5 seconds, uh, you're, you know, 10 miles away from (laughs) the original Mm. concept or thought. Um, which, you know, can be an incredible strength in in lots of circumstances, um, but can also make other things a bit more challenging. Unregulated emotions, really strong emotions, Mm -hmm. um, feeling things a lot more intensely than might be considered typical. Mm -hmm. Um, And often emotions going from... uh, an early kind of stage, like just feeling, you know, say for instance, like a five out of 10 really quickly to like a nine. And the reason for that is difficulty kind of linking in with other processes in our brain that help to down-regulate the intensity of that emotion. So for instance, engaging in some cognitive problem solving about it or some thoughts about it that might help us feel better about the situation. Unregulated behavior is looks like impulsivity sometimes so just Mm -hmm. doing the thing um there's something that we call stimulus bound behavior and that's one of the things we look for sometimes on testing um which is responding immediately to a stimulus in the environment Mm -hmm. so what that might look like is for instance if there's a pen lying on the desk without thinking about it 
you might just pick up the pen and start clicking it mm. because you're responding to the pen, mm-hmm. not, you know, you're not acting intentionally. Mm-hmm. So could another example be, say, if an email pings on your phone or whatever, you immediately have to jump in and start writing a response that you can't really just pause and think, yeah. oh, do I do I need to answer that right now? Yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, the hallmark really is around um, responding without intention. I mm-hmm. guess, um, responding based on your external environment mm-hmm. rather than thinking internally what you want to do mm-hmm. um, and responding that way. So um, combined type is difficulty with all three. Uh, this is just kind of a, a quick and dirty um, uh, summary. Inattentive type, people with inattentive type tend to not have as much difficulty with the behavioural regulation Mm -hmm. but more difficulty with their thought regulation. And would you say this type is maybe more common in girls and women? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's known to be. So um, girls and women can definitely have a combined type as well, Mm -hmm. Um, but they tend to have more inattentive type. And, you know, we've touched on this a couple of times Mm -hmm. where because the diagnostic criteria is behavioural, mm-hmm. it's really um, over-prioritising or over-focusing on people who have difficulty with behavioural regulation um, rather than their internal thought regulation. Mm-hmm. So often people with inattentive type ADHD can appear quite dreamy, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, they're not sort of off with the fairies so much as they're running around with the fairies <laughs> <laughs> um, inside their heads. Mm. So... Um, One of the things that we really look for uh, in um, diagnosis is getting the adult to describe that internal experience. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons why girls uh, with ADHD tend to be underdiagnosed is it's not until they're uh, at a point in their life and usually, you know, they're late teens or an adult Mm -hmm. where they actually have the capacity to articulate their internal experience. You know, Mm -hmm. an eight-year-old can't really tell you with much clarity or insight what's going on. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I do find a lot is when I, even with children, when I say, you know, um, with little girls, do you feel like your thoughts are going a million miles an hour and you've got more than one thought going on at once? What I often get is this really wide-eyed stare back and Mm. a slow nod of the head like, oh, my God, yes, that's exactly it. Um, But they just don't have the capacity at that point in their development to articulate that. And I think it's not uh, sometimes until that crunch time, like when you're in your adolescence, you're hitting grade 11 and 12, there's just so much going on, Mm. so much where you have to be like productive. Mm. Um, When you're hitting university, um, you know, those uh, issues with being able to regulate your attention so that you can pay attention to the things that you need to when you want to, (laughs) that's when it kind of becomes a bit more of an issue, I think, for women, whereas maybe sometimes in those primary school years um, there's not that sort of demand as much on the person and that's where sometimes those um, issues maybe start to become more apparent to that person and the people around them, whereas maybe when they're younger it's, it's masked. Yeah, for sure. And intelligence and, you know, cognitive capacity also plays a big role there. Uh, it's such a good point around um, thinking about when the, the demand of the environment begins to exceed your internal capacity. Because often, you know, really bright kiddos um, with ADHD uh, 
are experts at sort of masking that and pretending something's not a problem in their earlier childhood because the demands of the environment haven't yet exceeded their mm. capacity. Um, but when we get to, yeah, grade 11, grade 12, mm. the workforce, um, university, things like that, the demands are outstripping the capacity. Mm. And that's when those issues uh, become a lot more apparent. Yeah. Something that I've heard from people too is like, uh, from quite a few people is, oh, I've never been able to do homework. Mm. So from primary school onwards, they've never been able to do the work yeah. at home because that structured environment isn't there to provide that external scaffolding and that internal sort of, I guess, reminder to pay attention. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that can be different with that for women as well, though, is a lot of women with ADHD have anxiety as well. Mm. Um and what I find is we often either see one of two presentations, either I just can't do homework mm-hmm. um, and it's impossible or really difficult to sit down and get through it, or I find it really hard, but I have to do it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kill myself to get this all done. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to have a meltdown the day before the assignment's due because, you know, I didn't bring something I really needed home or mm. um, I didn't structure it in a way that, you know, made completing it easy. Mm. Um, but they often get it done because their anxiety is like mm-hmm. the stick whacking mm-hmm. them, like, come on, keep going, yeah. you got to do it. Um, and so – Teachers in school will often say, oh, no, they're great. They're Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're a little bit anxious, but, you know, it's fine. Yeah. And home will say, oh, my God, they're having meltdowns every week. Yeah. They're not coping. And, you know, what that looks like for the individual is often no cognitive capacity or mental energy or space left over for anything else. It's everything is gearing towards Mm. and working towards trying to be neurotypical. It's like it's all or nothing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I've had people tell me that say they're subjects at school and high school that are linked to something that they're interested or passionate about. It's much easier for them to, have that attention um, and and turn that on, but say the subjects that they're just not really interested in or engaged with, it's nearly impossible to engage with that content. Yeah, Yeah, and that's where we get, uh, we often get this kind of variable performance picture where Mm. some things are doing really well in Mm -hmm. and other things really struggling in. And that's why I like the concept of ADHD being actually closer related to regulation Mm -hmm. because when you think about regulating yourself or controlling yourself, you don't have to regulate yourself to do something mm-hmm. you want to do. <laughs> You've yeah. got to regulate yourself to do something you don't want to do. So people with ADHD have no problem hyper-focusing or doing, mm. engaging in activities that are interesting to them because that doesn't require any regulation. It's when I have to do something that is not interesting that that's really difficult. It's boring or um, has like lots of different steps in it. There's no immediate reward for the person in it. Um, yeah, and I think that's where as well, I guess, when I'm screening for ADHD and someone I'm looking at, how's their executive functioning going? Because often there'll be executive functioning issues. And I think that's where also you look at 
Um, you know, are those explained by other potential things? Like sometimes people can have executive functioning issues when they're in the middle of a major depression or uh, maybe when they are extremely anxious because they're going through a very stressful period of their life, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. And I think to take a step back, though, executive functioning, for those who might not have come across that term, um, I like to think about it like our brain's admin team. So the team that is responsible for delegating tasks in our mind, prioritizing information, um, organizing, planning, delaying gratification, um, everything a good admin team would do. Um, For people with ADHD, it's almost like their admin team has been underfunded. So (laughs) rather than having a six-person team like a neurotypical mind, they've just got one dude and sometimes he's drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Or he goes on strike. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, this is crap, I hate it. Um, So it makes doing those tasks really, really difficult. Um, And you're exactly right, Monique. The executive function side of things is one thing that we look at quite closely in the diagnostic process, not just now in adulthood, but how that was like, you know, Mm. in childhood and adolescence as Mm. well. Um, And also crucially, not just what the functional kind of output of that is. Like it's not just, well, do you do this thing or don't you do this thing? It's if you do do this thing, what does it cost you to produce that result? Because often that's the key, you know. Mm. Someone who has no problem with their executive functioning doesn't cost anything. You know, you've got six people. But someone who's struggling with executive functioning, that might mean, oh, I have to just have a down day for the whole day afterwards or I had a panic attack (laughs) or, you know, I dropped the ball on four other tasks so I could do this one task. So um, the diagnostic process uh, isn't just about you know, is X, Y, Z present? It's what are all the factors around that Mm -hmm. that either make or don't make that happen for you? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes uh, people don't realize um, that there is difficulty with executive functioning there. And so they're wondering, why can't I do all these things that other people just seem to easily and without that cost do? And that's where people can start to really beat themselves up and think I'm lazy, or they're getting that feedback from other people. Like, why can't you just do the thing? You know, you need to do the thing. And that's where I think um, being undiagnosed is really hard because people can really, after all those years of having that negative feedback from others, um, they can feel like they're failing and they can really develop self-worth issues. So just on that, uh, a term that is often thrown around at the moment uh, is called rejection-sensitive dysphoria. What are your thoughts on that, Monique? Um, yeah, I kind of feel like that term came out of nowhere and started circulating yeah. on the internet. Um, but I, it's not actually an official sort of term Um you know, I'm all for people like, you know, using their own words to describe their experiences. But I think that term really comes from what I've just talked about, which is feeling like a failure or, mm. um, or getting like from the age of six in primary school. Why can't you sit still? Why can't you do your homework? Why are you naughty? Why are you disrupting the class? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? You know, just so much negative um, attention. Of course, it's going to create 
uh, somebody that is very scared of rejection and has a big reaction to feeling like they're getting, I guess, disapproval from others. And, and is hypervigilant to yeah. that as well. Yeah, yeah. I, completely. And this is, I think, one of those lines between um, where is a label helpful and where is a label over-pathologizing a normal response mm. or, you know, an expected response to something? It's a trauma response. Completely. You know, yeah. if you're getting hammered from the age of six, um, that's a normal response to that. Yeah. And I feel like, is it actually part of the diagnosis? Is it part of having ADHD or is it actually part of being in a world where, the ADHD is not recognized, supported, and it's not in a world that's built for you. Exactly right. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, when I think when we give labels to things like, you know, yeah, I've had a whole bunch of really negative social experiences and got a lot of negative feedback socially. And that's made my brain super vigilant um, to possible criticism, negative feedback, things like that. Um, when we label that as, oh yeah, you've got rejection sensitive dysphoria. I think, I don't know, to me, that's doing a disservice to what's actually going on. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we said, this is just our opinion. If that's Mm. something that you feel kind of validated by and that resonates with your experience, then, you know, go for it. Um, Just be aware, though, that it's actually not sort of an official diagnosis. It's not part of the diagnostic criteria. Um, It's something that might be a byproduct of living in the world with ADHD. Yeah. So one last thing I just want to flag uh, about ADHD and, and some of the things that we look for and, and what's kind of going on neurologically is this concept around dopamine. So at the moment, uh, there's lots of information just sort of out there, you know, in the public around uh, ADHD and difficulty with dopamine production or differences in dopamine production. Um, some of it's accurate and some of it, I think, doesn't really give a complete picture. So what I just wanted to do is sort of explain what actually is going on in the brains of people with ADHD when it comes to dopamine production. So rather than it being just kind of a straight out, people with ADHD don't produce as much dopamine as neurotypicals, it actually has more to do with when dopamine gets produced and what things actually produce dopamine. So for people with ADHD, as we've flagged a few times, their whole nervous system is geared towards interest and passion. So someone with ADHD is going to get a little kick of dopamine and, and, you know, sorry, we should probably say dopamine is a neurochemical that gives us that reward feeling. It's really fundamental to our drive system. Um, so it kind of drives us towards things, you know, achieving something, getting something. We get dopamine when we eat something that we like. We get dopamine when you, uh, finish a level in your game. <laughs> you get dopamine when anything that you want to happen happens. It's an achievement um, neurochemical or a drive neurochemical. So for people with ADHD, they get dopamine when they're doing something that is interesting to them, that they feel passionate about, that's producing a lot of that uh, delicious sort of dopamine response. For people who are neurotypical, Neurotypicals actually get dopamine when they're doing things that they think are important, 
right? And someone who has ADHD, they might know full well that booking this appointment or scheduling something or doing this kind of task that they've been putting up for work, they know that's important, know it's important, but they're not getting any dopamine when they engage in that task because their nervous systems are not importance-driven. They're interest and passion-driven. So what that means is that it's actually so much harder for someone with ADHD to engage in a task that's not inherently or intrinsically interesting because unlike neurotypicals, they're not getting a little neurochemical cushioning while Mm. they do that. So it's actually internally, physically harder to do it. And this is where people with ADHD have often experienced this pervasive narrative that the reason that they don't do the thing is because of some internal moral failing or something that's wrong with them. I'm lazy, I'm I'm this, I'm that. And this is where I think people who have ADHD have had this kind of really long pervasive narrative that they've often internalized that their difficulty doing the thing uh, represents some internal moral failing on their behalf, right? It's like, oh, this just means that you're lazy or this means that you're choosing not to do this, you're choosing to, you know, behave in this way. Um, there's obviously things that we can do, you know, if a certain behaviour of ours is causing ourselves or other people harm, but, it, you know, the difficulty doing that doesn't represent any moral failing, on an ADHD's behalf. Um, It's actually physically harder. The other difference in dopamine production has to do with differences in immediate versus delayed rewards. So people who are neurotypical actually get a little kick of dopamine just in anticipation of a future reward. So it could be, you know, oh, I'm doing this thing that is boring and difficult and not fun. But just thinking about the fact that I'm going to get X reward from it makes it easier, gives me some dopamine that makes it easy to keep going with it. Whereas people who have ADHD only get a dopamine kick when the actual reward is taking place. So that kind of delayed gratification is really difficult because once again, there's nothing neurochemically cushioning, you know, doing the hard thing. So one of the things that I often suggest is if you have ADHD and you're really struggling to get through a certain task, breaking it down into really small blocks of time that have a clear beginning and end and giving yourself a little reward after each block. Mm, you like know. you're greasing up your brain. Exactly. To get it firing up yep. so it can do the thing. Yep, exactly. So, you know, for instance, if you've got an hour's worth of work to do and it's one of these kind of really difficult, repetitive kind of tasks um, that, yeah, that you don't have an interest in, it might be, I'm going to set my timer to 10 minutes and I'm going to do this for 10 minutes and I'm not allowed to do anything else. When the timer goes off, I'm going to, and it could be something as stupid as, I'm going to have a lolly, right? (laughs) Or I'm going to listen to a song I really like, Mm. or I'm going to do X, something that's a small little reward, set a timer for that. Then when the timer goes off, okay, another 10 minutes. So you're working in blocks. The practicality of that in terms of how that might actually be implemented will look different depending on, you know, your life and the task. But the essence of that suggestion is about breaking things down into really small bite-sized pieces and 
putting in a bunch of rewards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even things like bright visual displays can be rewarding. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be like every time I do this thing, I'm going to, you know, spend $100 on, you know, <laughs> a, a purchase. It can be really small, but it's about, once again, working with your neurology and not against it. Mm, that's it. I think that's really the key, isn't it? Yeah. So that was a really long episode today, um, but I feel like we sort of needed to go through all of that. Um, It's a pretty meaty topic. If you have any questions about what we talked about today or anything that you're wanting to clarify, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram. um, And what we'll try and do is if it's something you'd like to keep private, we can direct message you a response. um, Or if it's something that might be worth sharing, um, we'll sort of raise the question uh, in later episodes and we can kind of answer it on the podcast so thanks for tuning in guys this has been monique mitchelson and michelle Livock on the neurodivergent woman podcast and tune in for next week's episode